Hey, welcome back to the podcast. And I'm taking a short break from the preaching series. I've been working on some of my interviews got rescheduled. I've already started recording episodes for our self-care focus. I want to do a self-care of the pastor emphasis, um, you know, for about four to six weeks. We'll see how that goes. And I'm going to kick it off with Ed Bastine. Yes, we are related. He is my husband's older brother. Uh, so there's four boys in my husband's family. Ed is the firstborn. And Rob, my husband, is number three. And uh, Ed is a chaplain. He's been a chaplain for a long time. That's been his primary ministry, uh, both hospice and the hospital. Uh, in the last uh, couple of years, he's been a pastor uh, of a local congregation, a small church where he lives in Ohio. Ed, start, Ed started out, he and his wife uh, came to faith in Christ. They were adult converts. We were all adult converts, um, in case you haven't listened to the, any of the previous episodes. Uh, and so he and his wife came to faith in Christ in the United Methodist Church. They were instrumental in leading my husband and I to faith. Um, he, he later went over to the Free Methodist. Then they did a short stint in the Vineyard Church, back to the Free Methodist. And now he's in the United Methodist. We, didn't, we don't get into a whole lot of that. But um, we have known each other for a long time. Uh, my husband and I have been together since we were 17. So, you know, there's, you know, we just have walked this journey, um, coming to faith in Christ, just bringing our baggage to the cross. So we talk about that. We talk about leaving our baggage at the cross. We talk about self-care, especially in this season of COVID. Uh, and he shares a little bit of his own experience being a chaplain in the hospital uh, with some of that, um, talk a little bit about the difference between being a chaplain and a pastor of a local congregation. Um, and then Ed takes me to task a little bit. Uh, there's only a few people who have permission to do that in my life, and he would be one of them. But a uh, little different episode, I think, in the sense of, you know, we're pretty raw. This is how we talk. I mean, this is the kind of conversations that we have um, when we get to see each other which is rare considering, uh, you know, we both are pastors. So, and we live in different States and then there's a pandemic, you know, all that good stuff. But as I was editing this episode, some of it was just painful to remember just that place that we came from all of us. So we were just so broken and I'm just thinking about all of that and, the process that God takes us through to skim off the dross is painful. And even though those wounds are healed, they're still scars. Uh, and it makes us who we are as, as ministers. Right? We, we don't get to uh, trade in our past for something different. That's what we have. Um, and God is gracious to redeem it all. And I think probably this episode just reminded again of how grateful I am for God's grace, uh, his supernatural ability to redeem all things. Grace, grace.
is God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Enjoy the episode. really need to tell better stories instead of complaining about it, right? What if we right. just start telling the stories and really flood the airwaves with something different? Hey! Can you hear me? Yep. So, Mr. Bastine, tell me when you knew that you were spiritually gifted. I'll let you know when it happens. That's not the answer that you should be saying. I, I'll, I'll well, let you know when from your church might be listening to this. Kick it out. <laughs> I'm kicked out. Uh oh. I, I just want to say hi. Really good to see you, bud. Good to see you. Don't let her push you around. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Pastor Ed. How are you, ma'am? Good. So they're cutting the grass in the quad outside my window. Okay. I don't know if you can hear that or not. Yeah, I'll figure it out. It's what? It's not a big quad. It shouldn't last long. Okay. Hey, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Can you hear me? I can. And it's really nice to see you. Yeah, it's nice to see you. And you have new hours at the hospital. Officially, I'm there seven to four. Uh, that occasionally becomes six to five, and everything in between. But especially, especially now with the numbers going up. Yeah. Three weeks ago on Friday, I left, and we had one positive patient, and I left today, and we had twenty-five. So. Wow. Yeah, our numbers are definitely going in the wrong direction. Yeah, we're going up too. It's it'll be interesting <clears throat> when we're past the need for some of these restrictions to see what we've learned that we find we want to keep that actually help. And then uh and then those things we're just really happy to let go of. How long has it been since you switched over to the hospital? I've been there about five and a half years. <laughs> about five and a half years at the hospital and um about a year and a half at a, at a church actually pastoring, so please pray for them. I didn't realize it's already been that long. Yeah, yeah, they're extraordinarily patient. They're wonderful people, uh, and they have taught me a lot, and they are putting up with a whole lot from me, so yeah. Yeah. It is, It you know, I've always just assumed and, and, and thought I understood the difference between pastoring and chaplaincy, but but being able to do both has um, really demonstrated the differences and, and, and shown me the things that I, um, that I really appreciate about pastoring and, uh, and the things that I appreciate about chaplaincy. So it's been a real blessing. Yeah. What's one of the key, like the key distinctions, like when you walk in your congregation, mm -hmm. so much different. So a pastor walks in with answers, right? A pastor walks in with the truth. 
a pastor walks into a situation and says, these are the things that we believe. These are the things we stand on. Uh, he or she reminds you of, of all of those concrete things and reminds you that you belong to a community of people who share your beliefs. And, and all of that can bring some extraordinary comfort or some guidance um, in whatever's needed. A chaplain is almost the opposite. You know, a chaplain walks in and just sits with you in your questions and kind of helps you arrive at your answers um, in whatever way works for you. Uh, even if that's completely different than, than the personal beliefs that the chaplain had. I was talking with somebody about this today. Um, the only time that as a chaplain, I feel it's appropriate to challenge somebody's beliefs or somebody's ideas is if those beliefs are obviously uh, unhealthy. So I'll speak to patients in, in, um, in certain situations and if their particular theology holds that God is just simply and completely condemning them, I will challenge them towards a, a more expansive understanding of God's grace and mercy and, 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 and ways that we can lift that up. But if I come, well, I had a situation, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. I had a situation a year ago in which we had a, a Wiccan in the hospital and that patient wanted their tarot cards to do their morning readings. And they were told no for a variety of reasons. Now, obviously there's nothing about Wiccan uh, faith that I ascribe to, but for them, those readings, um, they, they likened it to their daily devotional. And for them, it offered them some guidance through their day and everything. So I advocated for them and they got their, they got their tarot cards. And it's, it's, a, it's a really strange thing. God and I spend a lot of time in prayer over <laughs> things like that. But it's that kind of idea. And that, that's how I think about the differences. Right. Well, I don't always come with answers to my congregation, so maybe that's what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they're that's why they're upset with me and funny. <laughs> well, obviously, uh, I probably know you better than most of my guests, so we've known each other for a long time. Long time. Uh, long time. And so you're just gonna have to be like, no, I don't want to go there. You know, I'm. Mm -hmm. um, no, please. Yeah, don't yeah. don't edit yourself. Please, just do whatever you want, and then, and we'll see what what happens. Yeah. So maybe maybe you talk a little bit about because um, most of my listeners know a little bit of you know my backstory and Rob's backstory and knows that you know he came out of an alcoholic home. So we just talk a little bit about how that coming out of a dysfunctional home how that come how you bring that into pastoring and chaplaincy and then and then how you navigate that you know what i'm talking about mm -hmm. i think so um because you and i were coming into the pastorate with an unchurched background right you know and maybe you know more baggage than some other pastor <laughs> well, the, the difference the difference between us is I think you've you've unpacked a lot more of your baggage than I have. I really treasure my testimony because it speaks so much for me to the glory of God. But there's a story and and if I 
you know most of my stories. And so if I start going into something that you think is boring, just let me know. But there's a story that that Ma tells about uh, a Christmas. And we were over at Grandma and Grandpa's. And so you've got this little little house on uh, Warwick in Detroit. And all seven kids, uh, Grandma's kids were there. Their spouses, their kids, all the cousins were all running around. And I really treasure those memories. And <clears throat> everybody smoking and drinking and playing cards and just being raucous. Uh, Chris and I, Tommy, cousins, we're all, we're all playing. Uh, we all got guns for Christmas. And so we're all playing cops and robbers and we're using Uncle Jerry as a barrier and we're, you know, we're uh, playing with the scenes and, and, and there's a, a, something happens where Tommy sticks the barrel of his gun through the back of a door and somebody closes the door and his gun breaks. And Ma will tell you that I cried harder than, than Tommy about the fact that his gun broke. When I was, when I was a very small kid, I had an incredibly tender heart the various things that I experienced in, as a child uh, really destroyed that. And I got to a place where I was very mean. Um, there's a story that I can tell you, and, I, and for, I cannot remember if it's about Rich or Rob, but I think it's about Rob. Uh, we were on Pershing, and I think I had some clay, and he made something for me out of my clay, and I was... I was so irritated that he used my clay that I smashed it in front of him and made him cry. I was, I, I was not a nice person. When, uh, when, all right, I have to pause for a second and just ask, do I talk to you? So do I just talk about Maureen and my kids or do I need to explain who everybody is? You can just talk about how they are. Gotcha. Okay. So, so uh, when Maureen and I were pregnant with Jake and, you know, she was brilliant in, in that, you know, she wanted she wanted Jake raised in church and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. But of course, obviously being raised Catholic, anything that wasn't Catholic was a cult. And so right. there, was, there was absolutely no way that my son was going to belong to a cult. He would have to go to the Catholic church. And Maureen, in one of the most brilliant um, responses of a wife to a husband, said, that's fine. I don't care what church it is but he's going to be faithful to that church. So you're going to need to take him to mass every Sunday. You're going to need to make sure he's in catechism, that he goes through all the sacraments. And I knew there was no way that was going to happen. So suddenly Methodism didn't look so scary. So, so I, uh, so she was taking membership classes at the time. And I went um, to, to those with her and Larry Van Slambrook was the pastor. And, um, and I gave him all my arguments about why religion was so ridiculous. I said, for example, uh, Adam and Eve. Yeah, now, now, look, Adam and Eve are not real. You can't expect me to believe that Adam and Eve are real. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. He says, uh, he says no, no, no. They, they may be just some old myth that had been modified for Christianity, or they may be just a metaphor for, for humanity. He said, but you know what? Let me, let me tell you my story because I choose to believe that they're real. And every argument that I had that was how I was met, with respect. He listened to me. He allowed me to explore all the things that I thought. And then he responded simply with his story. And at some point in that journey, I recognized I wasn't talking to Larry. I was talking to Jesus. 
And it was like Jesus was saying, what's your next problem with me? And then just kind of pulling me along. And soon I had to acknowledge that, that, that Christianity wasn't simply a philosophy. It was a supernatural reality. It, it really was. And I went and I, and I, I'll never forget. I said to Maureen, I said, we, we, this is real. This is a real thing. And we've got to tell people about, about this. And her eyes were so big. And she, she said, I just wanted you to go to church. And so then we went through the journey and we had, you know, three kids under five when we went through seminary. And, and in that process, I had my clinicals and I was in, I was in a hospital and, and, and everything. And finally get around to answering your question. When I felt that the Lord was calling me to ministry, my very first prayer, and this is this is word for word, my very first prayer was, all right, Lord, I'll do it. But you're going to have to change my heart because I love you, but I can't stand your kids. And he did. That heart that broke more for somebody else's broken gun started breaking through all the stone that was in me. And now I'm walking around a building every day for um, eight or nine or 10 hours, just desperately in love with everybody in there. And the way that coming from a broken home serves that is because God is able to redeem every single thing we hand him. And in order to survive the kind of environment that I was in, you had to be a very good listener. You had to know how to be very still. You had to know how to read a room and read a situation. You had to be very empathic. And all of those things are exactly what makes a successful chaplain. And so, so, so God just takes, it doesn't matter what we hand him, strips all the judgment off of it and says, now let me show you how this can be used for your good and my glory. Yeah. How long had you been a Christian when you started to sense him calling you to ministry? So I wanted to go to ministry immediately. I, that story was, was just how it happened. When I realized that God was a supernatural reality, I was like, we have to go tell people. Like right now, we have to go tell people about this. They, Christianity as a way of thinking is fine, but there are plenty of really wonderful ways of thinking. But when you add to it, the supernatural reality of God, that's what changes everything. It was only through really amazing support by um, Larry and uh, his associate pastor, Les, the, the church there at Clarenceville United Methodist Church, they, that congregation just rallied around and just encouraged and supported. Um, when it comes to sensing God, hearing a call, uh, God led me to do this and do that, my experience of that, I don't feel is as clear as some people portray their own. And I, I don't know about their journeys, but for me, it's been almost like a pinball machine, just sort of stumbling from one place to the other. To be really honest, I kind of do what I want. And then God shows me where I got it wrong. And he wants me over here, you know, because when, when, when you're wrong with God, it's still positive. If I, if I uh, went into a hospital or went into a particular ministry venue and I got the feedback, you know, God had spoken, people had heard God, and I got these really, uh, really encouraging things. That's awesome. And there are times that I went someplace and I got, yeah, no, this isn't working. 
okay? And then I went other places, that third place, and that third place is the key thing. I went other places where it's like, this really hurts. I feel like an idiot. I feel like I embarrassed myself. I feel like this was a mistake. And somebody comes up and says, wow, God really spoke to me through that. And that's been, that's been my ministry. And that's kind of the hardest, to be really, really frank with you, that's been the hardest part of my particular ministry. There are people like Billy Graham and I don't know, T.D. Jakes. I don't know. I, I, they're just people that, that when you look at them, when you, when you follow their ministry, they make you want to be holy. They inspire you. They educate you. And they make you, they, they, they remind you of God over and over and over again. And then there are people like me where you really get the impression that God is like, I cannot inflict you on any secular job. Just come here and I'll find something for you to do. All of my brokenness is kind of laid out there so that people can look and say, well, if he can do it, if he can make it, then I guess I'm okay. And so that's sort of been the, whole, the hallmark of my particular journey is I just be very human. And that's when I know God is working. When I, I don't necessarily hear, I certainly don't hear an audible voice. I don't always feel leading in my heart. But when I see people change, I know God's moving. Right. I've missed having these conversations with you. I have missed this so much. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot tell you. I desperately miss you all. I really do. Wasn't there, okay, if I'm remembering correctly, for three seconds, you were going to be a deacon in the Catholic Church or something? I can, I have considered everything all the time. And it's, (laughs) It's it's certainly possible because of the, now in all seriousness, the fact is I really do appreciate my Catholic upbringing. I really, really do. I think that there is um, there's an enormous amount of wealth that that tradition has brought to my ministry, not the least of which. So when you've got a when you've got a, a, a Methodist tradition, you know, where Wesley, he he broke so many taboos by extemporaneous prayers and preaching and, and going out and, and not being in a building and all of those things. And, and he built so much of it on breaking those traditions, which I value as well. It really helps me when I get, when I start wanting to dismiss written prayers, written uh, congregation pastor um, responsorial prayers, I want to dismiss the routine. The Catholic Church is what reminds me of the value that can come from from maintaining those traditions over time, and the value that can come from it's it, it's almost. I hope this doesn't sound heretical, but it's almost a Buddhist thing, like the Rosary, for example. When you recite those prayers over and over and over again, your front brain isn't thinking about those prayers. You know, right. it's it's just there, and it lets the Holy Spirit move and guide you. So, yeah, I. I, I absolutely may have considered being a deacon at the time, or that may have been Ma just going, no, really, you want to be a deacon, a Catholic deacon. Okay, that could be very plausible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I appreciate my Catholic upbringing. You know, if nothing else, you knew what the Gospels were. Right. And that is really, because you, Maureen, had started on this path and this journey before us. And 
I love that you shared that story about Larry because you guys just did the same thing. Like you modeled the same thing. You, we were living our own life, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, you could have come in and said, you, you guys shouldn't be doing this or shouldn't be, do-, you know, and you didn't, you just came in and kept pointing us to this one who loves so big, you know, his love is just so big and so, and so overwhelming, you know, in a good sense. Yeah. Uh, and that really, and that cycle has just been perpetuated what Larry started because, you know, that's how we do church at, you know, at Devonair and so much so that, you know, it's just embedded in the DNA. Yeah. This is a safe place for people to ask questions. Um, you know, we're walking with them on this journey, you know, rather than telling them what to believe, we show them how to believe, you know, it takes longer. But it's more authentic, right? That's one of the things that I struggle with with some with some um, contemporary churches is. All right, I'm going to ramble for a minute, okay? okay? So this is something I've been wrestling with a lot lately, and and it's really caused a lot of frustration. Christians claim to believe that there is no power greater than God. Therefore, sin can never defeat God. Yet when you read Revelation. The world has descended into such a way that God feels it's we need to just we're gonna we're done now we're gonna do something new. Well, if sin can't defeat God, and yet sin becomes so prevalent that God is like we need to wipe this all out and just Jesus comes back, then it cannot be that sin has won. It has to be that the church has failed. And my biggest struggle with the church is that it does not let people come to God. It tries to sculpt them into looking just like them. Right. And and that the most successful ministries are those in which absolutely they hold on to the gospel. They do not compromise on the tenets of the faith that have saved us. And yet they say, within that, come in because I want to look more like you. I'm not going to try and make you look like me. And when we love somebody with that kind of safe love, which perfect word that you use, when we create that environment where people can recognize they can be whoever they need to be within the context of the gospel, that's when God can really build a vibrant church. Right. And that's you're right, and I appreciate you pointing to Larry. If at least in my story, that's what he started. You be who you need to be. I'm going to be who I need to be. Take from me what works for you. Right. It's really it's really a situation in which instead of the ministers insisting that the congregation rely on faith, now it's the minister's turn to rely on faith. Right. Because I have to trust. That if I'm going to let go of some of whatever I claim to be my identity within the context of the gospel, that God's going to be the one um, owning that. God's going to be the one leading that. We cannot claim to believe in an infinite God and then explain to everybody what God is. Right. We have got to let God do the defining. Yeah, we, we don't trust the spirit very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. We we don't trust the spirit to do 
in other people what what he needs to do and what the process looks like like you know what's the what's the holy spirit going to work on first or um oh yeah perfect example <laughs> perfect yeah yeah i am going to make that man quit smoking and god throws up his hands going i was going to stop his murdering <laughs> right so when you decided well when you sense that god was calling you to ministry uh and then you, and then y'all left for asbury um when you originally went what did you perceive your call? Because I know I know it changed over time. Yeah. Got in a seminary. Yeah. I didn't, it, and that I think was based a lot on a lack of understanding. I didn't think I didn't know there was anything besides being a pastor. In my mind, all I really thought about was the fact that I needed people to understand that God was real. They could do what they wanted, but they had to understand it was a real person that they were dealing with, rejecting, accepting, whatever. Right. And um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't until seminary and the experiences there there was one very specific moment when when we went to seminary seminary really became my mistress um, when we first moved down there like I said we had three kids under three and Maureen was working full time and I was just giving a thousand percent to school I mean how can you not I just loved every bit of it I was learning. So so much that I never knew and it was all about God and I was desperately in love with God and it was amazing and then this incredible blessing of a, of a wife and three kids that God had given me was completely neglected and so um, uh, Maureen and I really wrestled with how to um, how to work that out and, and, and I really wanted to make sure that I returned to what honestly was my first calling, which was to be a husband and father. And so I was going to take a student pastorate and we went out there and met the congregation and talked and uh, it was a good meeting. It was very positive. We toured the, the parsonage. I mean, this is Kentucky, you know, and so it's going to have different uh, resources. It was absolutely adequate, but it was a very dark place. I mean, windows were nailed shut. Uh, there was there was dark paneling throughout the whole place, and um, as we drove home, Maureen was like, I, I I could never live there. And then she got to the point where she acknowledged, and and I appreciate her her courage in doing this. She said, you know, I I don't know if I want to be a pastor's wife, and it had nothing to do with ministry and nothing to do with God and and nothing to do with her and I. It was simply the idea that that there would be a group of people who would be very much in our business all the time. Right. And it so happened that I, that the program that I was in at Asbury required two clinical experiences and I was at a hospital. And again, this, this goes back to that whole, how do you understand God's call? I was really enjoying every minute of it. I mean, I say I was being very successful in, in CPE. The whole point of the of chaplain education is that you identify all the places you make really big mistakes. And so I had plenty of really big mistakes to identify. But that whole process itself, I was really enjoying. And it was it was in that time that I was like, in order to. To that first topic that I brought up, in order to meet the needs of my family and still fulfill what I felt like I wanted and needed to do maybe i should pursue chaplaincy and it, it um 
it got awkward because I was I went uh, as a United Methodist, but the United Methodists required three years of pastorate before you could become a chaplain. And so there was a very vibrant free Methodist church in Wilmore. And so I went and talked to the pastor. I think I upset him. He um, he told me that, no, the free Methodist didn't have that requirement. And so, okay, so we went over the free Methodist church. I changed all my credentialing and I, and I found myself um, endorsed by the free Methodist church. I wasn't ordained yet. And then as we started walking through the doors toward ordination, he would, uh, shoot, what was his name? Dean. The first name was Dean. He would uh, remind me, he said, I don't think anybody's actually ever done this before, gone straight from seminary to chaplaincy. So, but God was in it and we eventually got there. A lot of people, I think, go into the pastorate and then either decide that's not for them or mm. or they get close to retirement and then they tra transition. And, you know, really, honestly, those are some of the worst chaplains because what what they think is that chaplaincy is hospital visits right. and and like i said earlier it's a very very different thing you a, a successful chaplain really needs to be somebody who's a lot more comfortable just listening and letting somebody be who they need to be there is enormous value in pastoral visits there is enormous value in hospital visits during this time of covid i'm my doctors are telling me that patients are dying because they are not getting family contact, right. those hospital visits, those regular things. So I am not diminishing that in any way. It's just that's not what a chaplain is. And a pastor approaching retirement really needs to avoid chaplaincy unless God calls them to that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know that chaplaincy is not my calling. Well, perhaps not, but you are certainly identifying about seven or eight other callings, so I think you'll be fine. So you guys, tra so you transition to chaplaincy. Mm -hmm. Talk about, because I know you've worked hard on this the last few years, especially. Talk about self-care when you're dealing with a lot of death and grief and un like unresolved end of life stuff. So let me preface all of this by saying something that will not surprise you in the least. I am awful at self-care. <laughs> I am much better encouraging other people for it than I am at it. That being said, there was a, um, the two moments that I, that I remember immediately. One of them is I was in the hospital. I had been working at the hospital at that point. My first hospital that I worked at was St. Joe's, uh, Joseph's Hospital in Lexington. I had situations that were fairly typical in which an elderly patient would die surrounded by their family. I had situations that were not in which I had a 15 year old boy who committed suicide um, and just kind of everything in between. There was a time that Maureen and I took kids to a, a minor league baseball game and we were sitting in the stadium and people were walking by and they were in you know, their, their, uh, their eyes odd shirts, with the collars flipped up and the aviator glasses and, and looking in their own way, pretentious and, and just the, the, the Sunday afternoon in America kind of a crowd. And I just kind of burst into tears because all I could think about was I've 
seen you weeping. I have seen you on your knees. I've seen the snot pouring out of you and your body just racked. And, and, and this is all such a ridiculous mask that isn't real. And then um, years later, <clears throat> when I was in hospice, um, I was relatively new to hospice. I was just a couple months in and I was um, getting ready to go out and uh, I was doing home care for several years at first. And I stepped outside uh, and uh, my social worker was coming into the building. And this was like, I mean, just completely out of the blue. I just fell into her arms and started sobbing because all of my patients died for me personally. And I'm, and I apologize, doesn't answer your question, but for me personally, one of the first things to do was getting used to death, just accepting that it happened and accepting the gift in it. And maybe I'm jumping way ahead, but no, let me leave those, those two stories and then let, let me give you this one and then I'll talk about the in-between. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a, um, an elderly man in his 80s who was actively dying and his wife was next to him and she was just the most beautiful woman in the world. She was, she was well into her 80s and um, her eyes were so full of wisdom and every line on her face she didn't she didn't have a single wrinkle they were all just those lines that told that she had lived her life you just you were on sacred ground and they were hispanic and she was speaking to her husband as he was dying in spanish and and her her a family member was behind her quietly translating for me she she spoke to him about their more than six decades of marriage and spoke to him about their multiple children and um, the fact that oftentimes he had to work many jobs and the incredible relationship that they had had over those six decades. What a great husband he was, what a great father he was, and all that um, he had done to make their life on this earth everything that it could be. And she felt a certain amount of guilt because uh, he had gotten dementia and she had to put him in a home. She felt like guilt, very guilty because she'd broken her wedding vows. At which point she recited her wedding vows word for word. And the daughter in a brilliant moment of inspiration just shut up and let those words come out by themselves. And you and I have both heard those vows spoken so many times. And I can tell you when you have heard them said, backed with 60, more than 60 years of a successful marriage. There's a power behind those words. Just an amazing sacredness of that moment. That death was sad because the blessing was ending. But it wasn't tragic because they had lived out every moment that they had together. And that's the perspective that you develop there's sad death because you've lost someone you care about. And then there are tragic deaths because of all that was lost besides the person. And for me, probably one of the most significant elements of self-care for me is really recognizing that those sad deaths are honestly celebrations. They truly are. And, and I personally take a lot 
just from the privilege of being able to be in those moments. The fact that, that this family is allowing some complete stranger to share one of the most intimate moments with them. And that honestly fills me up more than it costs me. The tragic deaths are another story and some of them can be devastating. And so I think that it's, uh, it's, it's really, so first of all, that perspective is really important. Death is a part of life, it just is. And we've lost it today. We're living in a world where everything can be fixed. You know, I can't decide this moment I'm gonna travel around the world seven times if I want to, but if I wanna order a pizza, I can. You know, if I want to buy a new TV, I can can do these things. And so the idea that something's happening that you have no control over really bristle against, and that's just not reality. Reality is is focusing on the relationships, focusing on the meaning in in the experiences. In that, there's an incredible richness that really doesn't need self-care. It's it's the life that God intended, and it's amazing. So when I'm not in those moments. It becomes a question of recognizing I have got to make myself a priority. People in ministry, people in healthcare, people who find themselves nurturers, they are either on the verge or well over the verge of codependency. And they really suck at taking care of themselves. And what they have to recognize is if you can find a way to learn how to make yourself a priority, you are going to have that much more of yourself to give to the people that you want to. And so I've really had to figure out ways to do that. I've gotten to a point now where I have a day where I don't talk to anybody and I accomplish absolutely nothing. Yeah. I spend six days talking to people. Well, you know this more honestly, listening to people. Right. And there comes a moment as much as you love humanity, as much as you love the Lord, you just need everybody to shut up. All the introverts said, amen. <laughs> <laughs> and so you just find that quiet time and that, and that fills your cup and you have to be okay with that. You have to recognize that it, that is as much a part of building your ministry as Bible study or workshops or anything. That self-care is crucial to becoming a productive minister. And, and there's no need for guilt in that. Um, you ought to feel guilty if you're not taking care of yourself. Because, because we are not our own, right? We, we've been bought and paid for. And God has called people, and not just ministers, God has called us all to serve one another. And if we're not finding the ways that, that we can uh, maintain the resources that he has provided us in order that we might be the vessels that he can distribute to them to others, then we are working against God's plan. So it is absolutely okay to take care of yourself. And, and that self-care that you mentioned is ought to be considered one of the disciplines like fasting and prayer. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a set day or do you, does it change? It's, no, it's, it's Saturday. Um, Monday through Friday, I'm at the hospital. Sunday, obviously I have church and I've just decided to, that Saturday's the day. So after church, I'll go ahead and, and do, you know, laundry and start sermon prep for next week and all of that sort of thing. But Saturday's the day and, and I really try to protect that. That's my Monday. Yeah. The rest of my staff is all Friday, which I forget because Friday's my, <laughs> like Friday's my study day. So I just go in my office and sending emails. And sometimes I start sending texts. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's Friday. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, oops, sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> sending a group text to all of them on their Sabbath. 
I completely love the idea that one of the most sincere and loving pastors that I know is completely undermining her staff. I I just love that. (laughs) Talk about, talk, talk to the person who is sensing a call to ministry. One of the things that I've been really blessed with, and again, this just, this is just God. And, and I mentioned her to you. There's a woman in church, in my church, who I don't know that she would call define it as a call to ministry. She just knows she needs to be involved. Right. And she has done extraordinary things in, in our tiny little church. She has just really worked hard to maintain this church and help to keep it alive. And, and, and I am just so grateful for her. For people, for people who are sensing a call to ministry, I, the thing that I say to them is that you, that God is the greatest boss in the world, and you can't lose. You absolutely can't lose. At the end of the day, every single one of us is called to ministry, and for some that will be a paid professional pr- pr- position, and for some not. But if you chase that call, you will always win. There'll be a lot of trips along the way and a lot of mistakes along the way and a lot of things that you don't understand along the way, and it doesn't matter. Following God is the one true, authentic thing that you can completely rely on. We are living in a day and age in which every single thing that we thought we believed in is being undermined. We can't tr- we're told we can't trust news, we can't trust science, we can't trust one another. Everything is being undermined. You can trust God. And so to chase God and you listen to God and you do the work, at, make sure you pray, make sure you stay in the word, make sure, and don't just read the word and don't just read all the devotionals that echo all of the theology that you've been given. Study the flipping word for yourself and let the Holy Spirit speak to you because the thing that proves for me, and this is just me, the thing that proves the Bible is the holy, inerrant, inspired word of God. The fact is that if you're reading it with an open mind, there will be a specific message to you through it. Because the Holy Spirit of God, the creator of all reality, will be speaking to you, and you will find fulfillment. And the great thing about God is if you are sensing a call to ministry and you follow that path, when you chase God, at the end of the day, you might be working in McDonald's, but you will be serving God. And you will have complete fulfillment and contentment. And so I encourage anyone who has any inclination toward the ministry, let go of all the conventions, let go of all the images you have. God knows, let go of the idea of putting on a white suit and going on TV and healing people. Just think about serving and loving God. And you will come out the other side serving and loving God and you will be a minister whether you're a pastor or a chaplain or reverend or whatever other nonsense humans choose to put on. Yeah. Okay. So I have two questions to that response. Yeah. First, speak to the woman who is wrestling with a call to specifically, specifically address women. Oh, absolutely. Oh, for the love of God. Absolutely. Understand now, I'm not sure where all of this is going to go and how long this is all going to take, all right? I, I've got an edit button, so. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's been a tremendous amount of focus in the past 30 years or so 
on, on gender identity, on um, sexual orientation. There's been a tremendous amount of controversy in the church that flows all around um, the concept of human. And if there's one thing that we have really been deprived of from the garden to now, and that is the equality of the genders, because the fact is at the end of the day, if you read through, if you read in Hebrew, you know, God is, is a relationship. God is more than a being. God is three persons in one being. And God is perfectly human, uh, perfectly male, forgive me, and perfectly female. God is both of those things. But males, and, and this is, I know this is broad, and I know this is a vast oversimplification, but males, because of our fear and our ego, have worked to uh, hold on to absolute power. And because of that, we have failed to allow the other aspect of God's voice to speak. If there is one thing that this world, one simple thing that this world can have that, that costs nothing, but has the potential to change everything, it's letting the full voice of God speak, and that is to include all, both genders, all of humanity, however you want to define it. It is this time when the secular world is creating this broad spectrum rather than two black and white categories, this time more than ever is the perfect opportunity for women to step forward, to claim their power, to claim their voice, and really to submit to God, to allow God to claim it, because he's been trying to claim it for 6,000 years, and we've been working to stop him. And the church has lost so much. I go back to the idea that God is infinite, and there's a there's certain aspects of infinite we've embraced, but what we haven't embraced is the gender equality. And within that conversation comes a real infinite God. And God can do some amazing things if we would just stop being afraid and stop trying to fit things into uh, categories. Um, one of my favorite books and one of the books that really has kind of spoken to my specific theology uh, toward chaplaincy, which is to meet people where they're at and let everybody be who they are and then and then and then find God in it is B.T. Roberts ordaining women. You know, where you, you read that book and you get the idea that he doesn't care. If God said women should be nothing, he'd be like, okay, they should be nothing, but that's not what he found. He looked at the scriptures in the original language and he found that women ought to be just every bit as equal in, in ministry as men. Uh, Dulos. Dulos is translated uh, disciple everywhere except one place. One place is translated servant. Guess the context. It's the one place he's talking to a woman. Man has done that. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not the inspired word of God. That's man's translation. I, I, I have to be honest, and this is probably a lot of my own humanity, but I would really say that a woman feeling a call to ministry has much more of a mandate, much more an imperative of a man. We've heard man's understanding of the gospel for 6,000 years. We need more women. We've got women. Thank God we've got women, but we need more of them. Right. And if they choose to step back, then the church is set back. I mean, 
I'm not I'm not going to be making any sense. I just feel so strongly about it. But that is that is part of what makes God perfect. Frankly, I don't believe that God is a man. God is a perfect being, the perfect combination of male and female. I mean, there's script there's scripture in there where 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 the Holy Spirit refers to Himself as female. You get you're getting me on soapbox, and I'm you're going to be rambling. I'm not going to be making sense. I'm irritated. All right, so I want to go back to something you said. In, when you're talking about the, this call and the idea of the word being, you know, living and active and this relationship as you're reading it. So would you share one scripture that God used to speak to you at some point in your life and like how, how he used that? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't remember the moment. And part of the reason I don't remember the moment is because there's been so many moments. But my understanding, if you look at that in Greek, a better translation is that I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. And changing, changing that one word has really, in so many different situations, helped me understand because one of the things that I always struggled with and one of the things that I always pushed back against is this, this idea of a magical God. That you say the right prayer, you read the right scripture, you speak the right words, and, and everything is fixed. And Joe, you know that, that there's been a, a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of mistakes, a whole lot of humiliations. There's just been a lot of challenges in my life, and a huge amount of them have been completely self-inflicted. And the idea of a God who provides for you what you need to endure and then overcome is so much more authentic to me and seems so much more realistic and seems like such a more viable source of help than anything this world offers. He doesn't deny the ugliness of whatever happens. He doesn't deny the, the pain of it. He doesn't deny the challenge in it. He just says, I promise you can get through it. Just don't stop. And that's, that's my verse. I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to be tired after this. You know that, right? Me I'm too. Drinking, I'm drinking coffee, and I'm going to be tired after this. Me too. I've had <laughs> so many Zoom meetings this week. Um, but I'm not crying in this one, so that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> I had a lot of crying meetings lately. I'm a chaplain. I feel like a failure. I've made you cry. <laughs> uh, oh gosh, now I forgot. I was <laughs> oh, I okay. I remember now. <laughs> um, when you're talking about these holy moments in that you're experiencing these sacred moments, these holy moments, do you think we miss? Do you think we miss that in the local church body? Uh, it's our choice. It's always our choice. Um. One of the one of the things I'll never ever forget, teachable moment to me. God was really kind of revealing Himself and 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 helping strip away some of the uh, cardboard that we carry from Sunday school to adulthood. And um, I, this was back at Clarenceville, so this was, you know, this was almost thirty years ago. And the choir was singing a song, and uh, there's this older lady, a bit of a hunchback, in the choir. And she sang a solo and she was awful. I mean, she couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. But she meant every word. 
like every word she lifted up, that was from her soul to God. And it was beautiful. Like there's no way, you know, your human ear recognizes she's not hitting a single note and your soul is just rejoicing. And so I think it's our choice. I keep going back and I really applaud. And I, when I pray for you guys in the morning, it's, it's one of the things that I really appreciate is creating that safe space where people can be fully themselves. Sacredness happens all the time. If the church is losing sacred moments, it's only because it's forcing old formulas instead of letting God be God and people be people. Having the courage to recognize that not all of it is going to be sacred. Some of it might very well be profane. But when you create that space, that's when the sacred happens. Jesus, uh, When Jesus died, the curtain tore. There's nothing more profane than that. We have to create a space where we're prepared to allow God to do whatever he wants and to allow humans to do whatever they want, knowing our holy God is, one, more powerful than any profanity that can come in the church, and two, more gracious, and he can sanctify anything. The kingdom has come. It's one of the things I've been trying to talk to my church about. We're not waiting for the kingdom to come. Yes, Jesus will come back. All of that will happen and everything. But if you read the gospel, the fact is we can live in heaven now. We have that power to live within the kingdom of God now. We choose not to do it. Right. And it's hard. This year is even harder. But I do think that God is desperately trying to show us that it can be reclaimed. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one of the the things that you know with everything shutting down and we have we have fought it so hard you know nine nine months in and so many in the church are still having temper tantrums instead of really catching a glimpse of the sacredness and the holiness that's trying to enter in for sure i point i i oftentimes make reference at the hospital to the fact that the state that i come from when they were asked to wear masks, people actually showed up with guns at the Capitol building. I wish, I really wish. So one of my jobs these days is to go into some of the COVID positive rooms and um, FaceTime. You know, you walk in with your loved one into the hospital. They're not feeling well. They're admitted to the hospital. You can't see them because it's been determined that they're COVID positive. And then a week later, a critical care doc or a pulmonologist or somebody calls you and says, listen, we probably need to change their code status. They're probably not going to survive this. And they have, they, the family refuses. I, I was talking to them a week. This is ridiculous. So they send me in and, uh, and, I, and I get a tablet or a phone or whatever. And I FaceTime with the family so that they can see the, the patient on six or seven drips and on a ventilator. And um, you know, completely unaware of the world, see that that three of those drips are trying to keep their blood pressure up, and I show them the screen and show them the space. I wish these people that fought so hard and denied so much, because that person's going to die. And yeah, I may be able to be with them, a nurse may be able to be with them, but the people that love them won't be able to be with them. 
the most we can do is somebody can stand outside the room and watch through the window. We're we're racking our brains. Right? We we print out cardiac. We print out, you know rhythm strips for them to take with them. Uh, we make thumb prints. We I, I have little things that I that I have um, that the patient can be holding while they're there at the hospital that can be wiped down and bleached and cleaned and everything. And, and we're doing everything that we can do to to make it meaningful for the family. But at the end of the day, it's not what's best for the patient and it's not what's best for the family. But it's the best that we can do. And I'm saying all of that to say this. If we give it all to God, he can make each of those moments sacred. If we stop fighting for what we want, the uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about the um, about Reinhold Niebuhr's prayer, you know, the AA prayer, right. is that when he says something like um, accepting as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, that I might be reasonably happy with you in this world and supremely happy with you in the next. You know, that kind of recognition that sometimes we just have to accept we're not going to get what we want. And and I don't want to go too far afield. There, there certainly are arguments about socialization and keeping businesses open and all of that sort of thing. I don't want to go too much into that. But just recognizing if we stop acting like five-year-olds and insisting that we get what we want regardless of the cost, if we let the world be what it is, that's when God can do we have the supreme creator of all reality and we fail to recognize that every second of every day at every in invitation we have, he chooses to pause. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to pause and say, what are you going to do? And if we say, we're going to take this, he'll say, all right. But if we submit and if we accept the reality as it is, then he can move and he can take those painful moments of separation, those moments that shouldn't be what they are, and he can make those sacred too. But we Stop insisting on our own way. I'm almost sanctified, Ed. <laughs> and there's parts of it that are really exciting. I mean, and and this is and this is a little bit one of the blessings of being older. You know, I mean, I I work with 20 and 30 year olds, and and they're amazing people, and they just blow me away every day. Um, they've never seen anything like this, and the fact is, neither have I. But I'm I'm closer to the end than they are, so I think about. This is our World War II. This is our depression. This is, they don't always see it. And, and my heart, one of the hardest things for me right now is I work with some of the most extraordinary people on the planet. And they give so much of themselves to perfect strangers while they've got their own kids and significant others and life issues going on. They've got all of that happening. And they set that aside. They are amazing. But we're at a moment right now with the numbers going up and everything where there's not enough for everybody. I'm trying a lot of things. But one of the things I'm trying to do is reinforce the idea of the hero. And again, I think it's our, it's our American laziness. It's our, it's our American um, sense of all things our way. We love the hero. But somehow we don't recognize that 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 moment when the when the hand comes up out of the rubble and the music crescendos and we stand on our feet and applaud and everything, there was a lot of pain before that. Right. There was a lot of hurt before that. It wasn't just that he got there and everything was fine. 
we're in that place now. The rubble's falling on us now. But all the, the people that I work with, they are extraordinary. The, I, I know the people in your church. They're extraordinary. They've got the things that they need to rise up out of the rubble and be the heroes in the story. Just don't be discouraged. It'll get worse, maybe. Fine. Get worse. We've got God. We're not going to be defeated. Period. I mean, physical bodies may end, then we really win. But short of that, we're not going to be defeated. But we're also not going to enjoy every moment up to the, that place of victory. It's going to hurt. We're going to be upset. We're going to be discouraged. We're going to face despair. We're going to feel like giving up. All of those things are just part of the story. And recognize that's what it means to be a hero. And I'm really trying to impress that image of hero on these people. And unfortunately, it's been a little bit trivialized with the healthcare heroes and all that business. This is the real deal. Like, no, no, no. You really honestly have to be a hero and you have to figure out how you're going to cross the finish line. And again, this is one of the things that, uh, well, actually, this is a similarity between the pastor and the chaplain because we're both coming about it. We both recognize the same source. My folks are going to use different labels. But the fact is, it's God. Jesus was not happy on the cross. He was not happy facing the cross. He wasn't happy carrying the cross. He wasn't happy being nailed to the cross. He didn't just walk out of the tomb. Okay. He suffered the, a depth of pain that was sufficient to pay for all the sins of all humanity of all time. So it hurts a lot to be a hero. It costs a lot to let your hand reach out of the rubble and cross the finish line. What I need everybody to understand, what I desperately want them to understand is they have them. Don't give up. Don't turn on one another. Don't cut each other down. Don't do the devil's work for him. Right. This is a chance for us to have stories for our grandchildren. Guess what it was like. And, and you know what? And then we can impose a great, wonderful guilt trip on them. <laughs> I made it through COVID and you're complaining about your homework. You know, I mean, it's perfect. It is hard to be a hero. It is. But we all have that potential within us. Ironically, which pretty much is another word for God. Ironically, most of the time it comes through submission. I have sat down to write my letter of resignation more times in the last nine months than I have in the last nine years. You know, Karen Newhall wrote, wrote this letter or article or whatever, why everybody's angry at you right now. And, and if you're a leader and you're up front, you are the easy target. And, it gets heavy to carry. It's a very heavy cross to carry. One of the things that I find at the hospital, um, we have all these people who refuse to wear masks or refuse to respect the visitor privileges. I'm really blessed to have a boss who has chosen now to step in and really working to keep frontline people out of policing the rules. But one of the things that has cost me the most, hurt me the most, is people looking at me going, and you call yourself a chaplain, challenging every 
statement that I put out, challenging every position that I hold. One of the things that I think is really important, and it's not easy, and it's not magic, and it's it's not a brilliant insight that's going to fix anything. But right now we're in a place where there's very, in many ways, really clear worldly arguments and, and very clear godly arguments about how to proceed. And recognizing that when we're doing our level best to bring, and, and by this I don't mean the Bible, but by this I mean the, the, the word of God, the, the power of God, the, the intentions of God to respond to a situation. It is hard for sure. But at the end of the day, one of the things that, that I, with all the pain and with all the anger, side notes, I always thought that I didn't want guns in my house because I wasn't really a gun person. I mean, you know, I've shot them and stuff, but it's not my thing. And, you know, if you have them, God bless you, but not my thing. Mm, no, this has taught me. I don't have guns in my house because if I owned a gun within 20 minutes, I'd be in handcuffs. You know, somebody come in without a mask and I'd shoot them. It is hard. But when I go to sleep at night, at least the one thing I know is that even though they don't recognize me, recognize it, I'm arguing for the position that's going to be the blessing for everybody and not just one particular people at the cost of another. You, you've got such big eyes and you see you see from God's perspective so almost casually, like it just seems to come so naturally to you. And I'm sorry for the pain that you experienced. And I, it's a different kind of pain, but I felt a lot of pain from all of this nine months. And I can't, like I said, there's no magic words, but I know this. You cannot ever, ever step back because of this. Ever. If you leave this place, it has to be only and always because God's calling you to some other place. You know, I was, I was, um, I, I didn't, but I was going to put a, a Corey Ten Boom story in my sermon this week, you know? I mean, all the crap that she endured. I do an overhead. I don't know if I mentioned, I do an overhead at the hospital. And yesterday's was about Harriet Porter, I think her name was. And she was a 19th century quilt maker and slave. Mm -hmm. And her work is considered some of the best in the 19th century. And what she did was she used um, uh, biblical images with um, uh, Western, West African uh, thinking and told stories. Times are hard today. They've been worse. Nobody owns us. Nobody's, nobody's putting us in chains. Nobody's beating us. The country's not literally in a civil war just yet. And when you think of the battles that you've fought to get to where you are now, both personally and professionally, you got this. I, I, I can't tell you how much I'm completely going to get free lunches and coffees and stuff. Um, when you're like the next, uh, uh, whoever, and I'll be like, yeah, she, I was, I was actually one of, on one of her early podcasts. You know that? <laughs> uh, just don't stop just don't stop well we'll see about that uh I, well I'll, I'll edit this out but <laughs> it's hard being too conservative for the liberals and too liberal for the conservatives isn't it yes it is
And yet that's where we typically find the Lord. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfort. You have to take my advice though. You have to, you have to, you have to. And believe me, there are not a lot of issues on which I would state blankly or, or boldly, you have to take my advice. But you do have to take my advice and make sure you're taking care of yourself and step out of some fights for a time and let yourself feel, you know, because you can't stop. You are bringing the gospel forward. That's the message you need to hear. You and I both know, skip to the end of the book, and the church is going to lose. But in the process, who are we going to bring with us? So you have got to make sure. Don't fight every fight. Don't worry about stepping back from one or the other. When it gets to be too much, take a break and take care of yourself. You have got to be a priority for the mission you care so much about fails. I am. I'm running a lot. <laughs> I, saw, I see. I see you are. You are running. You do so many of the right things. You're running. You journal. You know, you've got your regular study time. Mm -hmm. Any words of wisdom or advice? Like whatever, just anything random. Yeah, well, I would have to say if anybody's taking any advice from me, they're already messed up. Um, <laughs> because no joke, one, one of the great things about God and one of the things that keeps me faithful to the Lord, one of the, one of the, the greatest testimonies to his reality and his power is the fact that um, everything that I've done, I've done wrong. And any success I've had is because he redeemed all of my errors. I think the most important thing for people, whether they're in ministry or not, I think the most important thing is to have the courage to be authentic. Be your broken self. That's what God needs. That's what God wants. He doesn't need perfect people. He's got the perfect thing kind of wrapped up inside. It is when we have the courage to be broken, when we have the courage to show our flaws and show the ways that he has used all of those mistakes, it's then that he can really achieve something. Don't try and be the picture of anybody. Just be real. Thanks. Thank you. I've missed you guys more than you know. Yeah but I'm more grateful than you can know um, for the excuse just to uh, say hi to Rob for a couple of minutes to talk to you like this. We haven't done this forever. Right. Um, thank you. I have two people who want to listen to it. I'm still debating whether I'm going to like it. Okay, so I shouldn't tag you in it? That <laughs> 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 <laughs>